0: you're all welcoming into the holiday season. This will be the last episode of 2020, and I intend on taking a few weeks, so the next episode in the new year will be released at the latest on the 19th of January, and I hope to have some very special guests lined up by then. Today, to finish out the year, we have an extremely special guest with Professor Diane Coyle, who is the inaugural Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge. She co-directs the Bennett Institution. Her research is mainly under the themes of progress and productivity. She has been a government advisor on economic policy, including throughout the current COVID-19 pandemic. Diane, for her services to the public understanding of economics, has received an OBE in 2018. And today we're going to talk about her book, GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History. Diane's work as an economist overlaps a good deal with the historical interpretation of how we measure economic activity. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I was truly honoured that Diane took time out of her very, very busy calendar to talk to us. And I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. Take care of yourselves. Happy Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. So Diane, thank you very much for agreeing to do this with us on the Economic History Podcast. I was just wondering if you could tell us to start off how you got into what you're doing now. Sure,
1: well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm not an economic historian, but I do think it's really important. I started out my economics career, as so many do, with PPE at Oxford, in my case, and I have always really appreciated the perspective that I've got from different disciplines as a result of doing that. And I had a fantastic economics tutor, Peter Sinclair, at Brazenose College, Oxford, who who sadly um, died of COVID-19 earlier this year, which is a great loss. He was somebody who took a very expansive approach to economics. He was a highly technical macroeconomist. We learned all of that, but we also learned the importance of political economy and economic history, which set me up well. I then did my doctorate at Harvard, where I was taught um, at that stage compulsory economic history courses by Barry Eichengreen and Steve Marglin, Brad DeLong, another eminent economic historian, and Greg Clark, yet another, were in neighbouring years to mine. So it was in the atmosphere. We had those kinds of historical discussions, but it wasn't my research. And it wasn't until I wrote a book called The Economics of Enough and started to think about how we might embed sustainability pr- properly in economic policy that I got interested in the history of economic measurement specifically. So my own work um, insofar as I've done historical work has been about the history of measurement and and in particular GDP and uh, what goes wrong with that. But the animating question for all of my research is is what do we mean by things make, getting better? And obviously, technology is one of the drivers of that. History is important to understanding technological change. And um, I think it's, it's really important to have that broader perspective because the economy is a complex dynamic system. Actually, I think trying to identify causal relationships is just inherently very difficult. People try to do it econometrically. I think that hardly ever works in these long run macro contexts. But what you can do is bring historical knowledge to bear and to help you identify causal relationships in your um, economic assessment.
0: And when you started out, um, did you ever see a paper or a book that inspired you, that kind of propelled you along the path you're on?
1: That's a really difficult question because I read so many books. Um, I have always liked the historians of technology, Nathan Rosenberg, uh, Joel Mokir with his emphasis on ideas. And I find those Really fruitful. I've read a lot of history of tech books, including recently one about the moonshot. It's called One Giant Leap. Uh, Charles Fishman, I think, is the author. And it's got a great emphasis on the role that that campaign had in driving digital technology. I don't know if there's one single book that I would pick out, but a, a cluster of books.
0: I have a confession to make. I'm not allowed to read economics books on my summer holidays. And this year I emailed you because I was so impressed by your GDP book. I snuck it down to the countryside in Sweden. And I'm glad that I've got you on the show now to talk about it as a Christmas present. So before we jump in, can you describe how governments of the 18th and 19th century assessed growth? or the level of income? What were the political motivations and maybe the economic theories that can explain the focus of those contemporaries?
1: One of the revelations when you start thinking about economic measurement over time is that, first of all, it's very much driven by the needs of governments. And that actually goes all the way back to the Doomsday Book and the assessment of Um, Obviously, many agricultural assets that people held then, and also that it was driven by the way people's ideas changed, also. So, there's this interaction between political events and ideas, and then the statistics, the lens that we turn on what's happening to try to make sense of this very complex world around us. And um, the sort of path finders for modern statistics were people like William Petty and Gregory King, who um, were looking at essentially the tax base of the economy. At a time when powers of monarchs uh, were starting to be extended and there were a lot of wars being fought, raising tax was obviously pretty key. And that drove, uh, in particular, Petty's assessment of the comparative advantage of the UK compared to France in terms of resources and what could be taxed and, and therefore in the uh, conflict between the two countries.
0: And you observed that World War One changed the framework of measuring growth. What was problematic with the existing manner of measurement?
1: By the end of the 19th century, it was apparent to everybody that they were living through an extraordinary time. This was the height of the dark satanic mills era, if you like, and uh, the phenomenon of factories, canals, railways was very prominent in people's minds. But the economic statistics at the time were focused very much on agriculture. I have a facsimile edition of the 1885 Annual Statistics Yearbook for the UK. And it's got 100 pages of agricultural prices and exports and so on, and 10 pages on everything to do with the Industrial Revolution. And so this often happens at a time of structural change that you have a framework that no longer matches what's happening. In the events, and so that the, the events drive both a different way of thinking about the economy, but also a different way of measuring the economy when you have that analytical framework. So that had happened by the turn of the 19th to 20th century. And um, The UK Parliament responded at the time by commissioning a lot of what became known as blue books. So They were particular uh, dives into certain questions like child labour in factories, where the information would be gathered. Um, The historian Eli Cook calls these moral statistics and the same phenomenon happened in the United States, that because there was no systematic framework, people looked at phenomena that were obviously important in society at the time. As you roll into the 20th century, the demands on states to provide for people, the citizens, grew ever larger. And um, rather than seeing the downturn of a business cycle as an act of fate, people began to see it as something that their government should do something about. It was the start of social security in the form of pensions in the UK and Germany. And so that demand for the government to extend its activities into counter-cyclical provision uh, was starting to grow and the franchise was extending. Then you have the sacrifices, the population made in the First World War, and, it, and then the Depression, and it became clear that the government needed to understand the economy as a whole and what was driving um, these these extraordinary downturns that caused so much hardship. So it was a combination of the Depression, but also that demand given the sacrifices that people had made and the extension of the franchise.
0: In the Second World War, we saw the first attempts to really kind of standardise uh, GDP or, or national income or national product. What is GDP and what are the three ways in which it's typically measured?
1: During the Second World War, Keynes wrote a pamphlet called How to Pay for the War, where he bemoaned the absence of statistics that would allow um, the UK, the Allied governments to understand what was available to um, fulfil the war effort, what what was the uh, resource base that they had in their economies, and correspondingly, what consumption sacrifices would citizens need to make so that the material could be diverted to war purposes. And there's a, a good case to be made that having a slight advantage in that kind of Economic statistics actually did contribute to the Allied victory in the Second World War. So it started then and it became a more systematic effort in the years immediately after the war, run through the United Nations, but with some British and American economists playing a leading role in that effort. And the idea was to do it as not a double entry, but a triple entry bookkeeping, if you like, that there would be a production side. An expenditure side and income side to the national accounts, or the social accounts as they were often called them. And these, in theory, ought to be equal to each other. It never quite happens in statistical practice, and sometimes the gaps are very large. But the different individual statistical series, the variables that would contribute to those aggregates, could be collected and you could triangulate between them. And the three are equal because of what's called the circular flow of income, that what produced What's produced is what's bought, an uh, expenditure, and the people who are spending then are providing the incomes of the other people. And so you get this circular flow of national income which was made a uh, physical flow by Bill Phillips. New Zealand economist at the LSE built a physical machine that represented uh, stocks as of assets as water tanks and flows as pipes connecting the water tanks. And he built this physical flow between the three circuits. And there are still some of these. There's one in the LSE. There's one in uh, the economics department in Cambridge. I don't know that they ever work now, but in principle you get a very nice illustration of um, that that equality between the three approaches.
0: The use of purchasing power parity as a means of comparing countries across space and time is somewhat controversial. First, can we explain what PPP is? And second, what are the problems or some of the major problems associated with it?
1: One of the um, frequent uses of GDP is to make these comparisons between countries. And you want to understand their actual living standards. So rather than using market exchange rates, which can be quite volatile, the calculation to convert from one currency to a standard currency, usually usually dollars, is done through purchasing power parities. And the basic idea is that the structure of different economies is very different, particularly at different levels of income. And non traded services in particular might be at very different prices in different economies. So you can imagine that in a uh, poor country, it's quite cheap to get your hair cut. Uh, in New York, it's quite expensive. So these different types of purchasing power parity exchange rates are used to do those conversions. And there's something called the International Price Comparison Project, which surveys households in different countries around the world periodically to understand what prices people pay for a a set of goods and services and therefore calculate these exchange rates. But they are controversial, and um, it's argued that using these actually – distorts the comparison because it makes poor countries look better off than in some sense they really are. But I think what the debate flags up is the inherent difficulty of understanding what real GDP means in um, either comparisons across space or comparisons over long periods of time because the structure of the economy changes so much. And I think it's not well understood what you're doing when you are using a price index to compare Um, the standard of living now with, say, 1910. Because what you're asking really is, if somebody uh, in 1910 had today's income, what could they buy, but only the goods available in 1910? Or conversely, if you're doing it the other way around, if you've got a 1910 income now, you can look at the basket of goods at any time. And it's just not obvious to me that it's a very meaningful question used across very different countries or very different time periods in this way there's a nice quote from thomas schelling when he says what we call nominal gdp is actually the real number and what we call real gdp is something completely hypothetical and it gets even worse because what statisticians do now to try to tackle this problem of using a fixed basket of goods is that they chain link as it's called so they they're patching together a basket of goods that evolves over time, but that's not something that anybody ever actually buys. That that too is e- that's even more hypothetical, if you like. And so, thinking about what is the intellectual exercise that you think you're doing when you're making PPP comparisons or looking at changing living standards over a long period is, as I think, something that we tend not to think about. We just download the statistics, but it needs a lot more thought.
0: So, in the golden age, so we say between 1950 to 1970. The world was split based upon Cold War allegiances. How did the manner in which communist countries record GDP or or output compare with the OEEC countries as they were at the time?
1: The key difference was um that the communist countries focused on material output. They stuck with Adam Smith, who had said that it was material production that mattered and services were, if anything, a drain on the economy. So right up until the fall of communism in 1989, they used those figures. And there was quite an industry actually of trying to calculate GDP equivalents for the Soviet Union as part of the you know, CIA's Cold War effort. And they completely overestimated, actually, what the level of Soviet GDP would have been in the 1980s. The actual, um, uh, I'm going to use this word, real standard of living in the Soviet Union was much less than a lot of analysts had thought it was.
0: As many countries emerged as wealthy states after the Golden Age, you write that they had, quote, an opportunity to reflect on the effects of economic growth, unquote. This leads us to the idea of the environment in national accounting. Can we just talk a little bit about what sustainable economic growth is, uh, how it is measured, and how it is generally incorporated, if it is incorporated, into modern national accounts?
1: The definition of sustainability is broadly that people in future will be at least as well off as people now, so you're not consuming assets to such a degree that they will be worse off. And in the environmental context, it's the natural assets that we care about. There is um, obviously some inclusion of the environment in the accounts to the extent that it gets into the market. So if you grow a a forestry plantation and chop the wood down and sell it, then that's going to get counted in GDP. But there are lots of the services that we get from nature that are not uh, so counted at all. Um, You know, the pollination by bees, um, trees absorbing carbon and and so on. And there's a relatively new standard, the system of environmental economic accounts that is trying to capture those and put them on the same basis as um, the way we construct the GDP figures. And um, a number of countries, including the UK, are developing natural natural capital accounts. So they are looking at their physical stocks and also the values of those physical stocks for a range of natural assets. I think the, the broader point, though, is that To be sustainable, we want to think about the environment as part of the economy and not as something separate. And in the national accounts, there's this concept of the production boundary. What's inside it gets counted. That's marketed activities and government activities. And what's outside it uh, doesn't get counted directly in GDP. And the environment is part of that, including all those very hard to value and environmental externalities, which is a problem we haven't yet really tackled in our standard economic statistics. It also, of course, means unpaid work in the home is excluded, which complicates the comparison between rich countries and poor countries where there's a lot of informal labour in poorer countries. But also, even in the richest of rich countries, there's probably about as much economic activity outside the market as inside the market if you were to value it at market wage rates, yeah. which is occasionally done, So if you look back at that golden age that you just referred to, the 50s and 60s, a lot of the GDP growth during that period um, was in fact the result of women moving from outside the production boundary to inside the production boundary, taking paid employment, buying consumer durables and ready meals and so on. So the scope of the market expanded.
0: With regard to the production boundary, Dan, what are the political consequences of how it is determined?
1: So um, the trouble with things being outside the production boundary is that they're thought of as not being as important as things that are inside it and have a, a monetary value attached to them and they get overlooked in economic policy. So, for example, countries have Tax incentives to get women to go out to work and increase female participation rate, thought to be a good thing. It probably is a good thing, but we shouldn't be designing policies without also thinking about their consequences for things that are happening outside the production boundary and um, understanding better what's going to happen. Uh, Another instance would be voluntary work, which is a really important part of our communities and uh, also to public services where volunteers in the health service, for instance, actually contribute quite a lot. We ought to understand better what that's doing before we start planning health spending in the monetary sense. So, it's about this visibility question really and the way that uh, GDP and in particular that one figure of the quarterly change in real GDP growth has become so dominant yeah. in economic policymaking. It's not that it's unimportant, of course it is. Mm-hmm. It determines things like the level of and the availability of jobs in the economy, but it's not the only thing that's important. We've been putting a zero on everything else, which is distorted policymaking. And I think we've got to a moment with the pandemic and all where people are realising what the costs of that have been. In your book,
0: you have a quote, a measure of national economy designed for tangible physical products, not really a good measure of an increasingly weightless economy. So what are the major problems associated with measuring the digital age, which is a part of services?
1: I think we're at a moment, as in the late 19th century, where we have a statistical framework that was developed at a moment in time and fit the economy of its time. And now the economy has changed quite significantly. So a lot of my research is looking at the different ways in which digital doesn't fit well into the framework we have for viewing what's going on. One example is a production boundary example. There are things that have been done in the market that are now moving outside the production boundary, fixing your own online travel or banking, producing open source software or entertaining cat videos, which are competing with people buying things like newspapers and magazines is one example. So that's been going on. We don't yet collect all the statistics we would need to understand the scale of that. Data, which everybody talks about as being a key asset and is one of the distinguishing features between productive and unproductive companies now, isn't counted in any way. We don't collect the raw data on data and a lot of the investment in data by companies isn't captured in the national accounts. And understanding the way it's used in driving productivity, we're very far from Being able to understand that. Then there are issues like customization and the way that if you're paying a high price for a service, such as a management consultant, you can't calculate that or you can't use that in a price index in the same way that you would a standardized service, because the price itself is an indication of the quality that the customer thinks they're getting. So if I pay a fancy consulting company like McKinsey or Bain to look at my company specifically, I'm not going to measure their work effort by the number of pages they write. It's all about the quality of what they produce and the prices, a reflection of what I expect that quality to be. But across the economy, there's a lot more variety, a lot more customization, a lot more new goods. All of those things make calculating price indices much, much harder. And a lot of the theory we have for price indices doesn't work well at a time like this, because the assumption is that there are not big shifts going on in people's consumption patterns. And in fact, we know there are genuinely very big shifts going on in those consumption
0: patterns. This kind of blew my mind, the statistic you had in there, that unpaid childcare was valued at more than three times financial services. Uh,
1: The definition of how you measure financial services value added to put into GDP has changed uh, very much over time, each revision of the national accounts has changed it. And each time it's got bigger or its its contribution to GDP has apparently got bigger. There's an excellent book by Brett Christophers at Uppsala University about this. And the, the latest is called FISM, Financial Intermediation Services Indirectly Measured. It's meant to address the problem that lots of financial services don't have a fee or a price attached to them, but it's the spread between interest rates that captures the value. But that means that you're measuring risk-taking As part of financial output. And we don't do that anywhere else in the economy. I'm taking a risk by taking a particular job or buying a house whose price might go down. And we never consider risk taking itself as a service. And so I and uh, Brett Christophers and a number of others have been arguing for a change back in the definition to something that would make the contribution of financial services appear as small as it genuinely is. Because we know from the financial crisis, that kind of speculation Subtracted value from society.
0: Your point about the political consequences of having a high value on financial services.
1: You're absolutely right, because um, they they lobby and they say we contribute X percent of GDP. You can't do anything that damages us. And that was how they got away with such a light regulatory touch for so long.
0: You recently wrote a piece for Project Syndicate on taking national investment seriously. The first part of the question would be, how can we build back better from the COVID-19 pandemic? And what might we be missing in the measurement right now, given the the year we've just gone through? We're seeing all of the the statistics coming out. What might these statistics not be picking up or overestimating or underestimating?
1: Our team talks about building forward because we don't want to go back, even if it is better. And the key thing that we've emphasised in the Wealth Economy Project is... It goes to this question of sustainability. It's understanding properly what assets society has, and that's the whole range of assets. It's um, physical and financial, but also nature and human and social and intangible capitals. Think of it as a national portfolio, and that's going to determine how people can get on. You know, Can they continue to improve living standards for the population broadly, not just for a few people? and what gaps are there. And thinking about it like that as a balance sheet directs you to thinking about investment, which we know at a time of economic downturn like this is going to be essential. Governments are going to have to start because private sector businesses have Lost revenues and demand is so uncertain, they're not going to invest at the moment. But there's a lot to be invested in. Health as part of human capital, obviously, most countries could do with thinking about the resilience of their health system, their public health, the interactions between the environment and health. Uh, it's turned out that respiratory disease is an indicator for poor COVID outcomes. Why are people living in polluted areas? Uh, what are we doing? in terms of investing in natural assets to clean up the atmosphere or get people into public transport. What investment do we need in public transport? So the idea is to think in an integrated way about this portfolio of things that will help the nation um, recover and build forward to a better future and a sustainable future.
0: Diane, thank you so much for today's talk. I really appreciate you taking the time and happy Christmas and have a happy new year.